You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us, Raul Pal. Now, this is going to seem a little redundant, but Raul is co-founder and CEO of Real Vision. He's an accomplished yogi, a wit, a raconteur and a bon vivant. Raul, um, can you talk a little about what you're doing these days? I don't know if I'm that much of an accomplished yogi. I've got kind of four independent operating limbs. I'm kind of like Bambi on ice, but I try. <laughs> I, you know, I can. I've got. We got video here. The podcast listeners haven't got video, but I, I've, I can see the pictures. He's obviously doing a lot of yoga. Believe me, right? And you can, if you look, if you could see me on the video, you could tell that I wasn't. <laughs> So, but anyway, tell us about what you're working on right now. I'm, I'm, I'm personally working on all sorts of things because, you know, I, my day job at Real Vision keeps me very busy. Um, I also have, obviously, Global Macro Investor, where I'm writing macroeconomic research and investment strategy. In addition, I've started a fund of fund business, um, investing in crypto hedge funds, and also another business that tokenizes the world's largest kind of cultural economies like pop stars, sports teams, and fashion brands. But my focus currently is on the macro. And it shifts around what's going on. But suddenly, things in the macro world are getting interesting to me. So what stories are you looking at? What, what exactly is, is, is catching your attention in macro at the moment? So we had the post-pandemic dislocation, both during the pandemic and afterwards, which has obscured the picture for many people. It's kind of there's always an equal and opposite reaction. So we had that very sharp recession, a very sharp bounce. And now we're all scrambling to figure out, okay, what's going on in the world? And, you know, I tend to have my Bloomberg screens open all the time next to me. And I just monitor things, whether it's the bond market, whether it's the dollar, the equity markets, commodity markets. And I try and see patterns and and fit things into an existing macro framework that I've got in my mind based around all of the research that I've done over the last few decades. And the yield curve, close to inverting, so that's the the long end of the bond market having lower interest rates than the short end, has preceded every single recession ever recorded. And when the bond market is doing that, it's telling me something about the narrative may be wrong. And there's a narrative out there, which is that Inflation is persistent and growth is persistent and the Fed need to uh, wildly behind the curve. That's what you hear it all the time. The Fed statement with Jay Powell, only recently, everybody was saying, you're behind the curve, you're behind the curve. But the bond market's saying, you're not behind the curve. You're actually probably too far in front of the curve. And that makes me go, hmm, what is that? Why is that? And then I start looking at things like disposable income, real disposable income after inflation. 
And you look at households and you realise their earnings are negative massively. In fact, about the largest on record. So their ability to buy stuff, inflation adjusted, has gone down hugely. While commodity prices have gone up, which has driven this inflation. So what you've got, I'm thinking, is, okay, we've got a potential big consumption squeeze about to happen. And the old commodity market adage, the answer for higher prices is higher prices, is what happens is you either destroy demand or you increase supply. So this kind of setup gets me very interested. And then we layer on top the geopolitical framework of Russia's commodities being somewhat excluded from the global market, forcing this more persistent price rises. And so that's really what I'm focused on, and that's what's leading me into what I think is the next big trade. So I think you've started walking us down the investment thesis a little bit with that intro, but why don't you tell us about this, the next big trade? What is it? Okay, so I'm going to start big picture first. So how I build a framework and an investment strategy is on multiple time horizons. So I have a big picture view that I've discussed at length on Real Vision, um, and there's a long video called, um, well, it's, it's an interview with Robert Breedlove that you'll find on YouTube that goes through this in depth. But essentially, we have a demographic issue in the Western world where there's an aging population. That aging population has also, at the same time, suffered from low wage growth in real terms because of globalization and and technology. So people took on more debt over the last 30 years, this baby boom generation. So a highly indebted economy with an older population that spends less, 30-year-olds incremental increase in spending is much higher than a 70-year-old's incremental increase in spending. And it's the rate of change that matters. So that tends to lead to disinflationary pressures over time. And we've seen that the chart of bond yields for the last 35 years is what I call the chart of truth. It just keeps going lower and lower and lower. And I can show that via things like the labour force participation rate, which we can project into the future because it's based on demographics. It suggests that that yields and inflation keep going lower. So that's my macro backdrop. I'm always cognizant is, could that picture change? And there's debate now, is is that going to change? Much like there was debate last time it got to the top of the range back in 2018, has everything changed? And Jeff Gunlack was calling for 6% interest rates, which would be a complete change of, of structure. Now, that's possible, but is it the most probable? So I think not. So I've got this framework that over time, there's a disinflationary trend. The acceleration of technology makes it worse. The globalization picture is changing somewhat because we're seeing this bifurcated world where people want to bring their supply chains home. Maybe that changes the picture. So, okay, there's risk in this. There's no perfect thing. So that's my view. We're at the top of that long-term trend channel of interest rates. So here, when we're talking today, 10-year bond yields are about 2.15%. That's the top of the range. Often they just overthrow a little bit to maybe 2.3%. So you're kind of in the area where we would be looking for a change. And then we look at the yield curve that's inverting to say, well, in the future, the Fed are going to have to cut rates. And bond yields are now at highs and everybody's expectations, everyone's kind of record underweight bonds. And that starts to get interesting to me. 
I think I've just seen the curve look like there are rate cuts. Correct. Priced, starting to be priced in the 2024 area. So it's it's curious to see that fading happening from the bond market already. That's right. And the bond market, I always say the bond market is the truth. And the reason being is equity markets are not very good macro instruments because they involve all the earnings of the companies, a lot more human emotion, what's fashionable, what's trending, where the asset allocation lies, you know, is it consumer discretionary, is it technology, is it value investing? And these tend to be narrative-based things. So they tend to be emotion-based and kind of trend-following ideas. The bond market has two jobs. It's all they need to do is future inflation and future growth. That's it. So when you've got only got two variables to look at, you're most likely that the outcome of the hive mind of bond investors are going to reach the right kind of consensus. I've only seen consensus wrong once in my entire career, and that was 1994, when the bond market blew up. Other than that, the bond consensus has always been right. It's always preceded what was happening. So if we wheel back in time to 2019 and 18, 2018, Jeff Gunlack's calling for interest rates to go to 6%. A lot of people were like, oh my God, inflation's out of control. And I was looking at the yield curve saying, something is wrong here because the yield curve is starting to invert. And by 2019, we started to see growth evaporate within the forward-looking indicators. Yeah, And that set me up for a bond trade then, which started off with the long end of the bond market and then finished off with the Eurodollar market. It ended up paying off as one of the best trades of my career. Um, And here we are, a few years later, with almost an identical setup. We're at the top of the range. Everybody said everything's changed. We have um, the yield curve about to invert and the forward-looking economic indicators falling sharply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. But how did we get to a place where this opportunity even exists? What, what drove pricing to here? In pricing in terms of uh, EDs, bonds, why, why are yields so high now if you see there being, there's a problem with yields being this high? How come we have this opportunity? Because there is a narrative based around inflation which is ingrained in the markets based on one episode only, which was the late 70s, early 80s which was the only episode of persistent high inflation that we've ever had, which happened to coincide with the demographics of the baby boomers all hitting kind of 25 to 30 at the same time. So we have this fear of inflation that is extremely high, and particularly with older demographics. Yeah. Um, and they've grown up with this fear of inflation. It was always the thing of the past that shaped them. So when you see inflation rise, which happens every time you come out of a recession, interest rates normally should rise to match it. But this time around, they didn't because 
the clarity of the global economy was not there because of the this weird overreaction that we had to offset from the very short, sharp recession. So we were kind of in a different world, a post-pandemic world with this supply chain issue. So the market looks at inflation and says, all inflation is the same, therefore we must raise rates. I think the cost of goods rising, particularly commodity prices, is actually a net monetary tightening because it's harder for people to afford things. So you're seeing mortgage rates go up as well, significantly now. So I think the market tightened itself from inflation. But people still wanted the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates. Now, maybe that worked. Maybe just the cognitive realization of everybody that rates need to go up drove interest rates up that drove the yield curve to invert. So the Fed didn't need to be in play at all. The market kind of did it. Yeah. I don't know. There's some sort of magic to all of that, how it works, but it but it kind of works. But the interesting thing is it's it's gone too far already. It's suggesting or it's very close to suggesting that we've got a recession coming, whether it's 2023 or 2024, we don't really know. Because sometimes recessions come quickly after the yield curve inverts, and sometimes they take up to two years. There's that classic uh, Soros story that he tells about reflexivity and how market moves can reinforce and reinforce. And and you know, there was a really good reason for rates got really low, and then there was a really good reason for rates to go up. Uh, COVID and massive fiscal stimulus. But the idea that we should project that into the future, that's not proven by any means. And So I can see why. And maybe what we're seeing, Harry, is something different here. We're kind of seeing a market being run by free market interest rates. Yeah. So the interest rates in the free market, without the Fed doing anything, rose to offset the growth and have said, okay, we're now at a level that we're going to cause a slowdown, which will bring inflation down. And that's with, that, that's with the Fed doing 25 basis points. It's kind of maybe it may, maybe the free market works. Yeah. Maybe it's self-regulated. We could always hope, right? Um, but what about entry points? One of, the, one of the essential components of a trade is identifying the entry point. Yeah, so it's all well and good to have this big picture framework. It's useless to make money in until you get the right timing. So if we talk the big picture framework is, okay, we're now at the top of the range of this long-term downtrend in yields. Is there an opportunity here? So that puts it onto my radar screen. Then I look at the narratives and the market sentiment. How are people positioned? What are they saying? Okay, they're saying the world has structurally changed. We're saying that interest rates are going to go up. And I had a dinner with Crispin Odie last night, uh, two nights ago, and Crispin's like, interest rates are going at 10%. Now, he might be right. You know, there is no, nobody has a monopoly on truth here or forecasting. What we're trying to do is the balance of probabilities. But when I start hearing things like that, I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. So now I'm starting to look for timing. So the first thing I look at is, okay, how does it work when the Fed start tightening? What happens to the bond market? So I go back in history, always. And I went back in history and looked at every time the Fed tightens, bond yields fall which is long-end falls. Everyone thinks, well, that's weird. They should be going up. No, they go because the probability of future growth and inflation falling goes up. So I yields fall. Yeah. So the bond market generally starts to rally the longer end of the bond market. Okay, so that's point number one. The Fed have just raised, so we should start to see bond yields top out. It's not always instantaneous. Sometimes it's a few months. Okay, 
Next phase is, well, what happens when the yield curve inverts? Well, again, roughly around that period, the long end tends to start to rally. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting now. So now we've got the macro big picture framework, the big picture timing at the top of the range. We've got the Fed raising interest rates where the market's fully priced it in. And generally when that happens, bond yields fall. And when the yield curve inverts, bond yields fall. Okay, so now I'm focused. The next part is technical analysis for me. Technical analysis is, well, next thing is market positioning. So I'll look at the futures market, how it's positioned. Are people very short bonds? How are institutions, are they overweight, underweight? So you start to see, is there kindling for a potential fire? Absolutely. Could there be a spark? Yeah. And that setup is there too. Okay, so now we're looking pretty perfect. So the next thing is the technicals. For me, I use DeMarc indicators. They kind of look voodoo magic. I don't fully understand them, but they're basically price structure, momentum of price structure. So it's kind of where it was, where it is now versus where it was four days ago, this kind of thing. And really, if you think about it, it's momentum of trend. So I always start now with multiple time horizons. So I start looking at probably the weekly chart first. Is the weekly giving me a nine or 13 count that could suggest a reversal? We had the first nine counts. In fact, I'm just going to put it on my screen now. Uh, we had the first nine counts about um, a, a few weeks ago at the recent peaks. Okay, but we're still counting like we could have another nine count. But we're kind of getting close into the area. So then I look at the monthly. Does the monthly fit? Well, we had a monthly nine, and it didn't stick. So we're counting up to another one, which is three months away. But not all monthly signals stick because monthly is a very big picture. So the weekly is probably more important. Sure. So we're kind of in the zone where we're looking for the next big weekly top pattern. Then I start looking at the dailies. Are we starting to see lots of counts of nines and 13s, which is all telling us that the market is running out of steam? So yes, we're very close. So I started putting on a trade um, about three weeks ago buying call options. Why call options? Call options give me the ability to be wrong and not lose my ass. So I used call options and TLT, which is a blend of, it's like 20-year bonds, blend of 10s and 30s. Why? No magic, except that you can buy longer-term options for retail investors, because otherwise bond options don't really work easily. So, okay, so we've got that. We put a starter position on. We're now feeling the market, and we're now looking for the perfect signal to add to the risk. I then start looking at things like, okay, what are RSIs doing? Relative strength indicators. Yeah. Are they also starting to diverge, which they are on the weekly level and the daily level? Okay, that's telling me momentum is waning too. I look at things like stochastics. Are they close to crossing down? And all of the technical indicators give me that, that um, strength of conviction. So now I'm waiting for the final counts in DMARC, and then I'm waiting for a price pattern, a chart pattern, to really press the bet. So, you know, I, I had a look at this because you you, gave, you were good enough to give me a heads up about what you were going to talk about. And I was looking at 10-year treasuries and I noticed, I mean, it's a little loose and I'm a terrible technician, right? It's, it's not my superpower. I'm a much better macro analyst than technician. But when I looked at it, I, I thought you could discern a, com a completed five in 10-year treasuries. 
Um, and if that were so, there's a, a really solid chance of an ABC retracement back to 175 and tens. So it just made me think that a question to ask you is, do you have a tactical objective as well as as well as a strategic objective? Because you might not buy the whole thesis, but you might say, you know what, this is nice for a trade either way. Yeah, and and that's right. And I the answer is right now I don't know because I take I I think there are credible arguments to say that normally we would get a correction. Actually, normally what happens at this point in the cycle post early post recession is yields go to new lows that's happened every single time since about 1990 or maybe earlier so normally it goes to new lows but maybe we've got something something different going on here where the commodity situation the globalization situation means that they don't go to new lows i don't know so i will take the tactical bet first before establishing, could it go back to new all-time lows? Because don't forget, if we have a recession, bond yields should go back to zero. So you might put a trailing stop on this after it's gone on the money. Yeah, or or take half the trade off, um, and then you know sit with that so you're in for free. But that that's where I am now. But it depends what plays out over this period of time. You know what what else is going on in the world. That would give me conviction. Oh my God, we're actually going to full recession here, and you know the Fed are going to be doing QE, and bond yields have to go all the way back down. That's my higher probability. Yeah, but it's not like a seventy percent chance. We're like, there's a lot of different outcomes that could happen here for you know a lots of reasons because this is quite a different world right now. So, and normally, like you and I have both worked in investment management firms and you, 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 when you put up a trade idea, someone's always going to stress test it. You're always going to have it tested and people are going to go, going to, you know, interrogate you a bit about what happens if. So how about financial conditions? Isn't policy so loose that financial conditions need to tighten? Isn't that a problem? I think financial conditions have tightened because of commodity prices um, and negative real wages. So I think what we're measuring in financial conditions probably not enough. I also look at rate of change. And the yield curve is telling you something, that the financial conditions isn't what you think it is. Now, financial conditions actually highly correlates with the ISM survey in the US. They're basically identical. So if my forward-looking indicators suggest that the ISM is at least coming down to 50 over the summer, or somewhere close to it, which would be kind of relatively low growth, 1% growth. And many indicators are saying, actually, it goes down to 47, 45, which is full recession, which is what the yield curve is saying. Well, then financial conditions themselves will tighten. Because once you start getting towards, once the market starts to see the, 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 the slowing growth, which is not yet in the headline numbers, it's in all of these derivatives of, then what happens is credit widens. Yeah. Financial conditions have that habit of tightening really suddenly on you. Because it's usually the credit market that does it, and that's in the financial conditions index. So we're seeing credit markets widen somewhat, but not enough. But they're actually in line with ISM. But if I use, for example, HYG and put that against ISM, in fact, I flipped you the chart recently after talking, it's actually predicting the ISM at about 47 or something. So it's actually basically saying a recession is coming anyway. So there's a lot of variables at play here, but it is very interesting. Now, 
the market also has the other argument that somebody would come to me with that that I think has strong credibility is okay. What happens if you're wrong and stagflation is real? I inflation is persistent because of commodity price moves. We can't get demand destruction because supply destruction is bigger, and therefore we end up with higher inflation and your recession. Yeah, I, I get that. That's right. I was I was just thinking it'd be there's something counterintuitive about um, real rates becoming even more negative at this point in the cycle. It's counterintuitive, but not impossible by any means. But that's kind of implied by by the trade. But what does that? About. I mean, the question is: is what does that tell us? So I try and see stuff like this sometimes, just remove myself from my own narratives. And if it if it's if real rates will not go positive and want to go more negative kind of endlessly right now, it's telling us there's a structural issue that people are not really accepting. I think that's right. And it kind of suggests that this system is much more broken than we understand, hence why 25 basis point rate rise from the Federal Reserve and the yield curves inverted or got to zero. It's telling us something, maybe people are looking the wrong way, where people are looking for the breakout inflation Maybe what the what real yields and the yield curve are telling us is actually the signal here that you know what you can't even have a price of oil going up to a hundred dollars without the global economy falling apart. Yeah, and so one of the things I'll look for in that as well because usually what that means is there's an issue within the credit market somewhere, and I'm not talking about somebody blowing up but a tightness of money that we don't really understand. And so the usual thing that that plays out in is the dollar. Sure. If there's a global shortage of dollars, this is the kind of thing we would expect to see. And lo and behold, the dollar's been relatively strong. It's not been gangbusters strong, but it's been strong. So I've just marked that down as there's two different narratives here. Which one is the real one? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Normally, I would ask about uh, stop losses or, or risk rewards or how big this trade should be. In this case, you're using options, so it doesn't seem like one should put a stop on it. Um, and you've, you know, options are inevitable have an implicit asymmetric risk reward. So the question's really got to be about the price you're paying for the options at this point. Are they too expensive? Um. Look, bond volatility has gone up, so they're relatively expensive. But I think, considering I'm really going against a narrative here, and you know there could be a structural change to the world, I'll have that. Op- I'll pay for that option because I will probably use futures later once I've got some price structure that confirms I'm right. Yeah. Um, and then we can use stop losses and we start thinking about okay, what's the risk reward here? I mean, if I think about risk reward generally, if I'm saying well. Yields are at two spot one five right now, and they could go to two thirty five. So that's 20, 20 basis points up. And I think that maybe one fifty is a decent first look 
um, at, you know, is my bigger thesis right or not? I mean, that's a decent enough risk reward as it is. That's at least a three or four to one. But if I'm really right and it goes down to zero, then it's a home run. Yeah. And I didn't think we were going to get a home run trade in bonds again, but it's possible. I thought yields would stay, would have just stayed lower. But because of this, this whole situation with supply chains, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's confusing everybody. What is the real picture? None of us know. So it's all conjecture right now because we've never had to deal with this. However, there is one time when people did have this and people talk about it now. So I went back and checked. It was 1973. 1973 was the Arab oil embargo. So people talk about the inflation of the 70s. I went back and looked at it. So obviously inflation rose as the price of oil rose. What did bond yields do? Barely rose. And then they fell and CPI collapsed from 12% to 2% in a period of 18 months afterwards. That was interesting to me. It was interesting that bond yields didn't go up. Equities took this brunt, much like we've had this time. Equities down 20%. That time it was down 50 Okay, slightly different world. That's, that's a big move. Uh, ISM hit 35 so that was like the lowest reading in ISM, I think, in history or, or uh, um, outside of the, um, the pandemic. So what happened in 1973 was commodity prices went up and equities fell. Bonds didn't move because they looked through it and growth collapsed. Well, this feels very similar to that. And where are we and what have we priced? So interesting enough... Here's some voodoo stuff that you have to cover your ears if you don't like this, but I use DMARC indicators on economic data, and it works. It's so weird. I just interviewed I, Tom I don't, DeMarc. I don't yes. think it's weird at all. I think any variable which has some sort of autocorrelation feature or momentum characteristic, and if, if it has that, that these, same, these similar indicators will work with it. If, not, if economic data is anything, it's autocorrelated. That's why you have cycles. So I, I don't find that weird in the slightest. Yeah, and they also the rate of change peaks out, and, Absolutely, um, yeah. and that will be picked up in DMARC indicators. Yeah. It's also weird. It works for the El Nino-La Nina cycle. Perfect. Every single one is nailed every single turn of, of the... Uh, El Nino cycles. It's weird. But anyway, and again, I think that's d- due to momentum because temperature change over time yeah. changes and then we start flip, it, it's, flipping around. It's a cyclical nature. The data is yeah. cyclical. And these are mean reverting, reverting data series generally. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I look at CPI and CPI is now counting very close to having the nines and thirteens of the reversal. It's either now or it's in that three months time that my... Yield, yield, um, the, the, the monthly demark on yields. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And the monthly, and the monthly indicator on ISM surveys turned over as well. Went back to 1973. Well, lo and behold, we had exactly the same signal on, um, on CPI then as well. So it feels like we've seen this before. What was interesting about the 73, it was followed by 78, 79. Yeah. Could we have the same? Well, it could be. It could be more geopolitics. So I don't know. That's why I'm saying, you know, I can't look that far out yet. Normally, without the geopolitics changing as fast as it is, I would say, no, bond yields going down to zero, probably negative. 
negative 50 basis points like the rest of the world. But I, I, I can't see that far into the future right now. So uh, I always ask about a thesis violation, um, which basically, how do you know when you're wrong? Like what what would what would tell you that you got this one wrong? In fact, some you know the future turned out to be different to what we were expecting. Well, I think the bond market will tell me. Price action should tell me. So therefore, if we've said, okay, there's this long term trend channel, and if it goes above that for anything more than a couple of months by a certain amount, which is never done before, then we would say something has changed. So price action will tell us that which makes it very easy to validate the thesis because of where we are in the chart. We're not in the middle of nowhere. It's like, you know, where we are in, let's say, the dollar, you know, it's very difficult to validate because you've got no chart level or anything to say you're right or you're wrong without quite a big move first. But this is more interesting for that. Um, Obviously, if geopolitics changes structurally and let's say we start getting into worst-case scenarios with what's happening in Ukraine – and we can see, let's say, China being involved, and we start to see real polarisation. We know the world is polarising, so it's the matter of what speed. If the rate of change increases, okay, then we've got a problem. And yes, we will have a massive recession, and yes, we could have a real supply chain issue that is persistent for five years. That's a different world. In that world, however, I think it's yield curve control. I think the only way of dealing with that is stopping yields rising, because that is not driven by demand the opposite and you're going to destroy everybody and everything if that if that happens so you 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 limit the the uh, rise in yields and you're basically stimulating the economy by doing it because you're printing printing money applying a financial uh, repression kind of semi-centrally planned at that point so you know well you know we've been in financial repression for a long time. That's what the negative real rates are about because we can't deal with the debt that we've got. So, you know, financial repression has been writ large since 2008. Yeah. And it's been underway and it goes through periods of accelerating and the periods of slowing down. You're right. The thesis violation is never as important when you're using options because you'll just be out of the trade anyway. So it's not, you not you don't have a stop. You don't, you don't have to worry. No, but my idea stop would be, listen, if bond yields are trading at 250, I'm wrong. You know, I'm, my whole thesis is wrong, let alone the trade. The trade takes care of itself because of the option. But is my thesis wrong? Would I have to say I need to change my thesis? Yeah. You know, and I've had thesis changes in the past. You know, thesis changes in the past were I was always looking to sell equities and now I'm always looking to buy equities, understanding that the reaction function of central banks is debased currency. Right. Um, and debasement of currency causes assets to rise in price. I fought that narrative for too long without realizing that actually it was the right one. Now, no, I'm with you 100% on that. Money always money goes down in value over time. And that's, that's a design feature, not, not an accident. And therefore, if it's the denominator of the asset, then the asset looks like optically it goes up in value all the time. Exactly. So what it's saying is these assets actually offset some of the financial repression. Yeah. People think that uh, they've been geniuses buying houses. It's not true. It's just that money goes down over time. So you've yeah, and got if I, real if I, if I If I divide German housing, I've done German, Swedish, Canadian, Australian, UK, and US housing by the balance sheets of the central banks, they're all about flat. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> housing hasn't gone up in value, in price. It, the denominator's gone down. That's right. 
that's true for all sorts of assets. Obviously, there are some that massively outperform, like your Amazons or whatever. But yeah, because they they're driven by network effects and tailwinds and uh, shifts. But the S and P overall, it, once you divide it by the Fed balance sheets, it's not that exciting. This great bifurcation point you mentioned. The the frightening thing is a possibility that the other the other trade block. I mean, we're ex- excluding Russia from the global trading system or Iran or Venezuela. It's not the biggest deal in the world, although God knows where we're going to find titanium from or cobalt. Um, but if China were to be excluded as well, that would be you know, an enormous new trading block and we'd lose all sorts of, uh, you know, there'd be a massive deadweight loss in economic terms because you'd, you wouldn't be able to trade with some of the lowest cost producers across the, across the world. You know, so we'd have to remake all of our supply you know, chains. How I think about this, like the Russian commodities... You and I know that in a capitalist-driven world, people find a way. So if we can't buy the titanium via Russia, we'll buy the finished goods with the titanium from China. Exactly. And if we can't buy the Chinese goods, we'll buy them via India, who will have imported them. You know, money finds a way, always. Absolutely. Um, But it will take a little bit of time. So we might have two to three years where these supply chains are in turmoil, while clever people are figuring out new supply chains. Um, You know, that's what all of the commodity trading houses, Trafigura and all of these guys, they made their living doing this. Mark Rich, you know, you buy it from difficult jurisdictions and sell them to other jurisdictions. So yes, but this period, this that potential for the geopolitical change is real, which is why, you know, that's that's where I think my course thesis would be wrong if this all escalates. Yeah. And the other thing is interesting, Harry, is, is you know, the issue that we've got in the world is this stagnant growth dri- driven by demographics. Well, in this world where we have to bring supply chains home, even if we're building factories for robots, it's fixed asset investment, which we've not had a cycle for for like 25, 30 years so it might actually be net positive for GDP growth because it looks a lot more like the 1950s and um, and the 1940s where we had periods of higher inflation, we had financial repression, yield curve control, and we had massive stimulus, which was both fiscal and the building of America. Sure. You know, it's I can't work out what the policy mix will be. They've used balance sheets and they've used rates and they use fiscal policy. Um it's hard to figure out how they will balance out all those variables going forward. Uh, so and for Europeans, for example, they've announced that they're going to boost defence spending. They've announced that they're going to boost, uh, do the energy transition, accelerate the energy transition because heaven forbid you use Russian gas. Um, and in that, they've got to, got to bring, it's a massive adjustment. It's an absolutely massive adjustment. The amount of spending is going to be enormous. But how much of that's going to be done via rates how much via fiscal? Well, I, you know, I've, I've looked at this and I really do think the 40s and 50s is the best example. Um, and some of the 30s as well, prior to World War II, is that kind of new green deal and all of that stuff that went through is they capped interest rates and the government spent like crazy and the there was stimulus to allow the... Um, um, industrial centre of the US to expand, same in, in Europe in the end, post-World War II. That combination actually brought growth. Inflation came down fast, and the real value of the debt eroded really quick. 
And it was actually kind of a glorious period. Yeah. But if you look at it and say, what? They were financially repressing. They were, they were spending all this fiscal money. We would say this is a bad thing, but they did it. And it proved itself really well. So, you know, maybe within this, there's a way of restructuring the global economy away from this bloody mess we're in today. I hope so. I really have to. So, full disclosure, I happen to have this trade. I don't have it in TLTs. I have it in uh, Eurodollar calls. Um, and I'm long of Eurodollar uh, EDZ4 calls, uh, 98.50, actually 98s and things like that. So, I, I, you know, you're preaching to the converted on this one. Um, I'm a little offside on them, but I don't mind because they are in option structures. And if I'm, you know, I could be right by 100 beeps. I could lose 25 beeps. Uh, the asymmetry is is kind of all important on this. But I can be wrong. I'm often wrong. Wouldn't be the yeah, first time. We all are, right? Um, and that's okay. But I think hopefully we've explained to people here how to build an investment framework, a thesis, market timing, business cycle analysis, so you're putting as much of the balance of probabilities in your favor, then trade construction to, to even put it more in your favor. These are the things that allow you to take bets. And, you know, you and I are trying to go against the trend with this fixed income trades. So we have to be cautious at first. It's not the time to try and pretend to be George Soros. George Soros, that trade works when it becomes reflexive in your favor and you're in early. You know, and that's what happened in 2019-20 in, in the bond trade is the reflexivity switches. And that's when you press the bet. Absolutely. Raul, thank you so much for coming on and talking us through your next big trade. Till the next time. Thank you, Harry. That was really good fun. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.